I have a really important question to ask you. Sure. It's about porgs. Okay. Okay. Why did Chewie take off the head of the porg, but not the little feet to eat it? I have no idea. <laughs> hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized, and I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 15, Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. Papa! 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 Don't kill it! It's unfair! Fern, you will have to learn to control yourself. Control myself? This is a matter of life and death. And you talk about controlling myself. Now, Fern, I know more about raising pigs than you do. A weakling makes trouble. Now, run along. <laughs> but it's unfair. If I had been very small, would you have killed me? Oh, certainly not. A little girl is one thing. A runny pig is another. <laughs> I don't see any difference. This is the most terrible case of injustice I ever heard of. Oh? Huh? You know, I've got a good mind to let you raise this pig. Then you'd see what trouble a pig can be. Oh, Papa. Would you? Please? All right. He's yours. Saved from an untimely death. Oh, look at him. He's absolutely perfect. His name is... Wilbur. He's some pig. Some pig, some terrific, radiant, humble pig. He is some pig. Oh, wow, look at him now, Zuckerman's famous pig. Suey, what do you see? The greatest hog in history. Fine swine, wish he was mine. What if he's not so big? He's some terrific, radiant, humble thingamajig of a fine phenomena. My land, isn't he grand? Zuckerman's famous pig. Golly, you gotta agree, he's a real celebrity. Fine swine, wish he was mine. What if he's not so big? He's some terrific, radiant, humble thingamajig of a pig. The terrific, radiant, humble, humble. Zuckerman. 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 Zuckerman's, Zuckerman's famous pig. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by Porgs and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature and, of course, the Porgs. And each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read 
we're going to determine whether it is actually worthy of its reputation. So I'm Stella and I am hosting this particular episode and with me today is the uh, the pig to my spider as I said last episode. It's Tom Panaris. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Did you keep away from all Star Wars spoilers before you saw it? I did, I did. That's good. So I did I was, as well. I was well. very happy about that. Now you have to keep away from people complaining and shouting Ugh. things and things like that. So that's what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what I've been doing too. Oh, it gets, it's really, really frustrating to, to deal with that on like – especially since it's a movie. Yeah. Like I, I really – like there are – there have been times over the last few years between this and Batman vs. Superman. Sure. And a number of other things where I've wanted to do my own version of the William Shatner get a life will you people thing from Saturday Night Live because it's just it's 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 getting out of hand mm. how like vicious people are toward one another or how just over dramatic they are about entertainment. Sure. So I guess it's just pop culture I think takes on a life of its own and I think some people unfortunately don't order their desires as much, you know, as well as they should be. So it's just like I think at the top, and so it, just a lot of emotion goes into it. Whereas you know, you should just you like what you like, and then you let other people like what they like. But unfortunately, that doesn't work out. I will say though that because um, I'm not gonna, you know, well, I enjoyed it. I'll say that, but I loved the different creatures. Uh, some of the aliens were a little bizarre, I will say, but I especially liked the beautiful horse-like creatures and also the crystal foxes, which I probably have been annoying everyone with even before the movie came out. I was talking about those, but they were just amazing to see in actual real life. So, And, of course, I just mentioned about the little porgs, but I like the crystal foxes more, I think, than the porgs. Well, here we are. Uh, we're about to talk Charlotte's Web, and I think I surprised Tom. It seemed like last episode he had no idea I was going to pick, and he was happily and pleasantly surprised that I was uh, picking this one. So here we are, and of course we always like to talk about our history, and I think you spoiled a little bit about your history last episode. I uh, I think I yelled at you and accused you of using your son as a beard and that you really loved it, but you said it was your son. So now is your time to explain yourself and talk about how you have come to love and enjoy this this beautiful little book. This is a book that I've known since I was very little. It was – I'm trying to remember the first time I ever read it on my own. And I want to say that I've actually – the first time I'd read it was I had it read to me probably by a teacher reading to the class. And um, I know that – a number of times through elementary school, I saw the animated film version that has songs and everything in it. And that was always my uh, my experience with Charlotte's Web up until uh, a number of years ago where I read it for the first time as an adult when Brett was – I don't think he was even like a year old, but you know, we'd take turns you know, putting him to – you know, putting him to bed every night would read certain books and stuff. And, and I read my way through Charlotte's web with him. And, um, and then, uh, he read it in grade school 
well, as of this recording, he's still in grade school. And uh, he read it a few years ago. And uh, I think he's seen the live action version. Okay, with Dakota Fanning. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've not seen that. E.B. White especially has been one of my favorite writers uh, since college. Now, I've never read Stuart Little. I have read The Trumpet of the Swan because I was assigned it in college because I took a course. Uh, being a writing major, uh, once you got past your like intro to creative writing and you know your kind of prereq courses in my major, you took a lot of just basically specialty courses in like special topics courses in writing. And one of them that I took in a college was called the art of prose EB white and, um, didn't really take it. Cause I, I mean, I knew who EB white was cause I knew of Charlotte's web, but I, I took it uh, because, uh, the professor that was teaching, it was one of my favorite professors. She was my freshman seminar professor. So I wanted to take her again. And, um, we spent, we, we read the trumpet of the swan out of the children's selections, but we spent a lot of time um, reading his uh, essays and I fell in love with his writing. It's just, which is just absolutely amazing. And um, so I was just very, very excited because, uh, you know, this he's basically one of my favorite writers. And uh, this is out of the three, out of the children's books of his that I've read, this was my favorite out of the two. I don't know if I've had, if I have a history or a relationship with the actual book. I can't think that, I, I was, I've really been trying to remember if I had ever read it, but I think my relationship with Charlotte's Web really is the animated feature, and the same for Stuart Whittle, both things that um, I have seen. Or actually, I'm thinking <laughs> The Mouse of the Motorcycle. But no, Charlotte's Web, I remember seeing that one. I think that was, was Beverly Cleary. Yeah, that was somebody else. I was, sometimes I confused That was Beverly mouse, Cleary. Which is, I, I suppose, specious of me. Ralph S. Mouse. Yeah, I should not be... Uh, confusing uh two mice together i i remember seeing that animated feature pretty early on and i remember seeing it several times and and i think probably each time i cried when charlotte passes away spoilers and i considered watching it again tonight as like you know getting ready for this episode and i wasn't emotionally ready to see it again because i knew what would happen at the end so my relationship with the book in fact this is my first reading of it i do believe but the actual story i have been a fan of and that film and that adaptation i have loved a great deal hadn't seen the dakota fanning version i think probably because once you get attached to one particular version you don't really want to see another one Mm -hmm. Um, so i I just stuck with that so this is yeah so this uh, my first read through and uh it was very enjoyable so well i I do want to talk about the actual uh well eb white um which i'm sure since he's your favorite author i'm sure there'll be things that you'll like to interject but in particular his relationship with writing this and in a way it all begins, I think, in 1948 when he, which thank you for this, Tom sent this to me, he published Death of a Pig, which is an essay. Would you consider it an essay? It is. It actually is literally found in a book that I own called The Essays of E.B. White. So The Death of a Pig is an account of his own failure to save a sick pig. And it's interesting because... I, I feel like there's almost this commentary running throughout that sometimes you don't realize 
the things that you love or like a lot or, you know, a great deal until after you lose them. Because I think at the beginning you don't really – he doesn't really realize how much he very much likes the pig. But then as you mm-hmm. go throughout, you can tell how much he actually likes it. And then you feel a sense of loss. And he feels a sense of loss when uh, Defta bury the pig. Uh, and so in a way, Charlotte's Web could be seen as a – sort of retroactive saving of this pig that he was unable to save, perhaps, perhaps. But his overall motivation for the book, we don't really know. And at one point he did write, I haven't told why I wrote the book, but I haven't told you why I sneeze either. A book is a sneeze. Uh, It was published three years after he began writing it in uh, 1952. He just dropped a manuscript on his editor, Ursula Nordstrom's desk. And this was Charlotte's Web. And she very much enjoyed it, and it was published soon after. We know that White met the spider who originally inspired Charlotte. This is kind of weird vocabulary, met the spider. It happened to be a gray cross spider. And uh, in the novel, of course, Charlotte gives her full name as Charlotte A. Cavatica. And she describes herself as a barn spider or an orb weaver with the scientific name Aranius Cavaticus. Originally, he opened the novel with an introduction of Wilbur and the Barnyard, which later becomes the third chapter, but he Mm -hmm. actually wanted to start the novel by introducing Fern and her family on the first page, and at one point, uh, White's publishers were concerned with the book's ending and tried to get White to change it, Uh, so we can certainly talk about that when we get to the the death of Charlotte there. So Charlotte's Web actually has become White's most famous book, but he never revealed or talked about the farmyard and the barn that helped to inspire the novel. So I think like many authors, I think that we continually hear about, he just likes his privacy. I think we're, we're starting to hear that more about, you know, I think about Calvin and Hobbes, that author. We know about your favorite book, his, that author. That was very vague, but you know what I'm talking about. Catcher in the Rye. Oh, J.D. Salinger? Yeah, because he's kind of a recluse as well. Not saying that uh, White is a recluse, but just, you know, he wants to keep his private life private. Was. was, I'm sorry? Was. E.B. White died in 1985. Okay. He was private. Thank you. Uh, Charlotte's Web was well-reviewed and well-received. Eudora Welty actually wrote, as a piece of work, it is just about perfect and just about magical in the way it is done. It is 78th on the all-time best-selling hardback book list. Uh, we don't really know about paperback sales, or at least I don't. But the, the book has sold more than 45 million copies. It's been translated into 23 languages. Of course, we've got uh, the old-school um the vintage adaptation. Then we've got the 2006 film. So it was, I mean, I, I think it... Well, just from there, it seems like it deserves its place on shelves and in uh, the hearts and minds of children and adults everywhere. But those are just the numbers. So as we go through this, we'll have to say, do do our opinions stack up to the numbers? Do you have anything to add since you seem to be well-versed in E.B. White and his writings and things? No, not really. Okay. Well, we'll get into the plot synopsis then, and this one's actually a shorter plot synopsis, which I consider, do I need to do I need to fluff it up? But I feel like, no, I, I think we'll be okay not having uh, a very long one. So here we go. If you are unaware of 
<laughs> Charlotte's Web. It takes place a short amount of time, which is very interesting. But here we go. After her father spares the life of a piglet from slaughtering it as a runt of the litter, a little girl named Fern Arable, or Arabelle, nurtures the piglet lovingly, naming him Wilbur. Upon reaching maturity, Wilbur is sold to Fern's uncle, Homer Zuckerman. No relation to Homer Simpson. In whose barnyard, he is left yearning for companionship, but is snubbed by other barn animals, until eventually being befriended by a barn spider named Charlotte, who lives on a web that overlooks Wilbur's enclosure. Upon Wilbur's discovery that he is intended for slaughter by some uh, not-nice barn animals, Charlotte promises to hatch a plan guaranteeing that he will be spared from this slaughtering. Accordingly, she secretly weaves praise of him into her web, which ends up attracting publicity among Zuckerman's neighbors, who attribute the praise to divine intervention. Uh, the first one that she weaves in there is, what a pig. And then you have humble, and was there another one in between there? Terrific. Terrific, yes. At one point. There you yeah. go. As time passes, more inscriptions appear in Charlotte's webs, uh, increasing his renown. Therefore, Wilbur is entered in the county fair, accompanied by Charlotte and the rat Templeton, <laughs> uh, whom she employs in gathering inspiration for her messages. And he goes off to his little trash piles and gets some magazines back, basically. Little shreds of paper, and they just that's the inspiration right there. There, at the fair, Charlotte spins an egg sack containing her 514 unborn children. And Wilbur, despite winning no prizes, is later celebrated by the fair's staff and visitors, thus made too prestigious alive to justify killing him. Exhausted, apparently, by laying eggs, Charlotte remains at the fair and dies shortly following Wilbur's departure. Having returned to Zuckerman's farm, Wilbur guards Charlotte's egg sack and is saddened further when the new spiders depart shortly after hatching they fly away on their webs. The three smallest remain, however, and take up residence in the doorway where Charlotte used to live. Pleased at finding new friends, Wilbur names one of them Nellie, while the remaining two name themselves Joy and Arania. The book then concludes by mentioning that more generations of spiders kept him company in subsequent years. Whew! Okay. Well, the big question is, Thomas, did you like it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think we already answered that earlier. <laughs> ah. um, yeah, this is, this, is a, this is a personal, as far as children's books goes, this is a personal favorite of mine. And um, the, the thing you pointed out uh, earlier about how this ranks 78th in the all-time best-selling hardback book list. Reminds me of how hard it is to actually publish a children's book that has um, oh, timelessness that, like, that like people will want to keep reading or like generations will want to keep reading. Uh, the children's book market is like one of the toughest ones to to crack into, and and it's it you know it, it's only so many people who's books, especially for an audience this young, um, get like read and read and read and read and reread beyond just like that initial publication. And, uh, and it's because of books like, well, you know, I mean, going even back to like, I'm going to call them picture books, but like, you know, the smaller pi picture books with pictures, like, uh, you know, where, where the wild things are and, and, um, various Dr. Seuss books and things like that, you know, that stuff still dominates sure. like people's childhood and Charlotte's web is another example. I mean, People have not stopped buying Charlotte's Web, and um, even even like, gosh, like thirty 
something years after I first, you know, had it read to me in in class, I can see why. Do you think anything has has pierced the market as this has in the past ten years? Do you think we're so uh, s- sort of separated from? From that, now that we're adults, that it's hard for us to know. Because I, I was thinking as you were speaking whether I've heard of anything that, you know, oh, this is a must-read children's book. But has there been anything that's popped through and been like this? Mm, I would say the stuff that is more geared toward the older children and the young adult. Mm. Because the young adult market has exploded in a sure. way that it hadn't when, when you or I were not were children. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just thinking as a parent, thinking of how – I think sometimes the decision to read books like this to your kids is fueled by the fact that you had it read to you. Mm. So there's a, there's a sense of legacy or tradition about mm-hmm, it too. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like I, I, I heard, I mean, you mentioned the Beverly, you mentioned off, you know, uh, we mentioned Beverly Cleary very briefly. And, mm-hmm. um, I read a lot of those back when I was in like the second, third and fourth grade now, I've only read two Judy Bloom books. I've read Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing and Super Fudge, which were probably – and I'm not saying this to be all like you know gender stereotypes and stuff like that. But they were probably the most geared toward boys of all of Bloom's books because if you think of like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret and um, some of the other ones, they're you know very much like – I know that they're almost like a, a rite of passage for a lot of girls of my generation. I actually would be curious if any um, – I don't know if any women of my generation listen to this podcast, but if they have passed down reading like those books uh, to their daughters or something like that because I don't have a daughter. So okay. um, so yeah, but I just think of – I think of books that like you know I read and Amanda read and that we were like – we got to make sure we have a copy of this book because we want to do it. And it's, you know, it's like, like I said, it's, it's something as simple as good night moon or where the wild things are, or the giving tree, which talk about a sad book and something as complicated as, as he got older, like Harry, the Harry Potter series, mm-hmm. which, um, which neither of us had ever read, but you know, that was one of those things where like, you know, okay, now you're at Harry Potter age, so, and I still haven't read it. Amanda read it all with him, but th- so that idea of that you're getting into territory of like, hey, I read this as I was, when I was a kid, and you should read it. And this holds up very well, and it's not as antiquated as some other things are, and is not as I came across an, uh, like a, a Robin Hood, like one of those hardback Robin Hood books that they sell at Barnes and Noble of like uh, a retelling of it that like, was geared more toward a younger audience. And they didn't they didn't care to update some of the language, so there's like some anti-Semitic stuff in there, and I'm oh, like, no, we're not reading this. Yeah, and it's just like, and there's like Grimm's some of Grimm's fairy tales are like that too, you know. And and so when you're so this has stood the test of time because it really doesn't have any of any of that. I, I feel like the one, I mean, Seuss was definitely it for me, and then I would also say uh, Amelia Bedelia. And those crazy, mm-hmm. and, and I, I'm attached those. to those because of like how ridiculous she is. Like I remember dressing the turkey and <laughs> literally putting clothes on there. So I guess yeah. this was just one that slipped through. Nothing, you know, against my parents, but um, yeah. I also I really liked it. I wasn't sure how it was going to be presented with words. 
rather than, uh, you know, the pictures and the moving picture that I was so used to. And I wondered if this was going to, which is so reverse thinking, right? How is this going to hold up to my beloved cartoon adaptation? Mm-hmm. But it held up really well, and I think it added, you know, details, and you got to see more, and it made me think, certainly. So I, I very much enjoyed it. Filled in the gaps, you know, because uh, adaptations can only do so much. Yeah, I haven't watched that movie, and I don't think I've seen that movie since I was, like, seven years old. It's been a long time since I sat down to watch the animated version of Charlotte's Web. So now we've got some questions. And the first one I wanted to ask was about Friendship. And because this is something that Wilbur very much seeks during the first, I guess, quarter of the novel or so, because he has a good friend, uh, but then due to circumstances, you know, uh, Fern can't always visit him, and so he's he's quite lonely, and barnyard animals don't really give him much friendship, so he's looking for a friend. So my first question, of course, is uh, what do you think makes uh, someone a good friend? What qualities would you say? And do you think it makes a friendship better or worse when friends face difficulties, either together or separately? I wasn't sure how to answer it because it's a very relative question. And I wondered sometimes that he was seeking companionship more than friendship, which could be two different things. Um, So I started just thinking in context of the literature, and I thought back to George and Lenny. Um, in Of Mice and Men, and there's something to be said about how difficulty did, I don't want to say drove their friendship, but it, it certainly was a huge part of their friendship, the fact that they were constantly facing difficulty, and that, I don't even know if it made it stronger or weaker, it just essentially made it what it was. But there is a, certainly a motif in children's literature, especially young adult literature, of friendship, of companionship, and 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 that, like, You've got somebody to get you through this difficult time, whether no matter what the genre, because you see it in, you know, your sort of YA realistic fiction, your children's realistic fiction, but you also see it in sci-fi, horror, fantasy, you know, dystopian. The, the the vast vast majority of a, a, a number of dystopian young adult novels that have come out in the last decade or so you see a lot of it in there you, there's it's rare that you have a, a like a a solo character that doesn't have any companionship or any friends or that they're not seeking companionship in any way so i think at least this, this friendship can help drive character development in terms of um main characters protagonists and things do you think that Charlotte was a better friend slash companion to Wilbur than Wilbur was to her? I think that see, I don't I don't know if Wilbur really knew what it was to be a friend or a companion because he was so young. And Charlotte being as old as she is, you know, in, in terms of, you know, her lone lifespan is is wiser. So I don't think that since they're on sort of a different level with one another, I don't know if you could necessarily say that one was a better friend to the other. In fact, there's sort of a teacher-student relationship between Charlotte and Wilbur that she really is like, you know, because she's not, I don't think she's like mothering him, but she she certainly is teaching him uh, the ways of the world. And um, and I got that out of that. So that's that's a different sort of friendship, a different sort of of back and forth than you would have in, say, 
I don't know, various members of the Babysitter's Club or something. I don't know. You know, like the two, two types of friends who were like of the same age and were um, and were very much like, you know, best buddies or something like that. Yeah, I guess his only experience of it would be with Fern coming in. So he's got his idea. And so when Fern's not there, I mean, yeah. he, that's why he feels this yeah. sort of this ache of, of loneliness and yeah. expects it always to be like that. And, and Fern, who essentially really raised him, you know, I mean – she was his friend and his playmate and everything, but like, you know, she saved him and raised him like, you know, kind of fed him like a doll or a puppy or something, sure. you know, yeah. so, or a baby, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, the, uh, the you know, as an overall, friendship is, is certainly difficult, I think, when either party is facing difficulties, but I think it also, it's almost like the friendship is, I'm trying to think here, like the best phrase. I've got this like metaphor running in my mind, but it's not the, I, I think sometimes hardships can make or break friendships. And mm-hmm. I think the strongest ones are actually made out of difficulties. And, you know, I'm just thinking like personally, uh, you know, going through difficult times, those people that stick with you through those difficult times are normally the, the best friends and the true friends, I would say, that really uh, stick with you. With this one, I think uh, I agree with you that because he's so young, he's also naive, and we get to see that with all those questions he's asking, and Charlotte will say something, and he'll be like, I don't know what that means, and then uh, she explains it to him. But it seems like he does reap more benefits in the beginning than perhaps Mm -hmm. she does because, I mean, her ultimate goal is, is to help him so that he can live, and there's not really much he can do to help her out in this regard. He's just living. Uh, you know, kind of on autopilot there. But I feel like at the end, he becomes a true friend of her because he's protecting that egg sack. I don't know if, you know, for selfish reasons, he's he wants all those spiders to stay so that he's not lonely again, but he takes oh. care of them. Uh, and, you know, I was going to say with his life, but not necessarily. But he, he's protecting them. And then at the end, he, he sort of has Charlotte again with him, but just three of them, and he'll take care of them. So I feel like at the end, he has learned from Charlotte, and he becomes a friend to her, even though she is no longer present with him. Yeah. And and one of the things about, like, you know, friends and through hard times and things like that, there are those who stick with you, but it's you have to be careful that you're not – you don't enable each other or – that you are looking for a sycophant rather than a friend. And that's, it's really, so it's a kind of a balance. It's a line to walk because I've, I've had, you know, I've had those, those friendships that where when you're honest with the person, when they're going through something and, you know, you kind of paint a realistic picture of the situation and they don't accept that, or they don't like what they hear. You know, like just the idea that like, you know, a friend is not necessarily there to tell you what you want to hear. So it's um, it it can be a little bit tough. Um, But then again, it's it's human relationships. They're they're complicated as it is. But, yeah, she he it's like he learns the lesson and then from her and that's him him protecting the egg sack and then befriending her children and then subsequent generations is uh him uh repaying her yes or and showing that he's learned the lesson you know showing that he's he's grown uh moving on to the author how do you feel eb white's writing style and his particular use of vocabulary affect the novel's quality well this is something where like i i i 
actually went into my closet in my classroom and, and took out my copy of uh, The Elements of Style, which he co-wrote. Well, he wrote Will, – Will Strunk wrote – the first, uh, the first like four parts of it, and then White edited, and then he added the approach to style chapter at the end. And he has, um, oh, it's like twenty-one different rules for style that are briefly and in other ways elaborately stated in a way that like is just so just precise and and well well phrased that I um, to the point where I actually took this chapter scanned it and had my uh ap seniors read it this year because it was just like when we were working on college essays because he has you know he has very just basic rules you know um let's see uh you know aside from revising we write do not overwrite um do not overstate avoid the use of qualifiers do not explain too much do not use do not construct awkward adverbs. Make sure the reader knows who is speaking and avoid fancy words. And he he elaborates on all of these. Do not use dialect unless your ear is good. Be clear. And I'm 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 as I'm reading that, uh, Charlotte's Webb, I was thinking of that. And I was thinking of how like white really is, like the best way I can describe his writing is word economy. You know, the idea that you're writing in a way that is not overwriting and not using too many fancy words and not showing off but at the same time you're not like dumbing yourself down you are just being very you're succinct and you're you're precise and he never talks down to his audience and and what i love about this is that he's not afraid to use complex vocabulary he's not afraid to use complex words and the voice he employs in being the narrator is of an adult and it's almost of like a teacher or a parent or grandparent telling a story to a child and I think it really serves the novel well in that this novel reads aloud incredibly well. And I think White, that's that's a testament to White's writing. It, it begs to be read aloud. I think there are also some advanced parts. I think that it's, I, which I guess goes to what you're saying about, you know, being an adult and, and telling this story. Because there are certainly some vocabulary words that uh, children wouldn't understand. Mm -hmm. But it's nice because the children, in a way, take on the persona of Fern and Wilbur. And mm -hmm. so, you know, explaining certain things. And, and the the narrator is both the adults as well as Charlotte. Because, you know, who says salutations? You know, these sorts of days. And, <laughs> and you would ask, like, what does that even mean? So it is nice that I think if there is this wonderful connection of, of reading to a child, you're really taking on the characters. And then that child is um, also a part of that novel and taking on characters as well. Yeah, I like that he uses complex vocabulary around children because it, it it lights their curiosity for words. That's a word I don't know. What does that word mean? Whereas if you trimmed, edited this down to remove all of that, it loses something. And that's one of the things about – about language that's so important it's that you're that you you when you read above your level or you hear something above your level that you don't dismiss it as too brainy or or feel stupid for not understanding but that you like that you foster curiosity in a child and then a young adult that they'll want to find out what that is and that is being lost in a 
big way in our society and 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 uh you know so that's 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 what that's why uh white's language in this book is so comforting you know it's it's unfortunate now because while wilbur asks you know what does something mean i feel like unfortunately kids these days just pass over words that they don't know <laughs> and yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. And, and, and don't take the time to look them up and in the dictionary or, or you get the time-honored um question that i used to get from my students when i would give them a synonym of the word right i'd give them a synonym that was like slightly simple so oh, this means like big why don't you just say big like no because this is a better word for it it's more specific it's more precise elevate your language well those were the first two questions i want to ask that was sort of overarching and focusing on the whole work but now we're going to get into some more detailed oriented questions and the first one is about fern saving wilbur from death and this happens in the beginning and i i really well i wondered if first read first glance you might think that this is a very unique experience and this wouldn't happen every day but now that I've read March, <laughs> and if you recall, you know, John Lewis, mm, not saving any of the chickens, but certainly being aghast at the fact that the chickens were being slayed and slaughtered. Uh, do you mm. think it's more reasonable uh, that, this, that this happens? Or, or do you think it really is just a unique event that Fern is able to, to save a pig? And did you at all have any, did you have any emotional connection over to March and John Lewis's story? I didn't think of it when I read it, but when you brought it up, I thought that's a really good juxtaposition because like Lewis knows he has to kill the chicken, but he can't like, he can't bring himself to yeah. do it. And Fern about hears about what, what that Wilbur's going to be killed. And she stops the killing. They both learn something about compassion mm. and a value for life. Mm -hmm. um, I do wonder, however, if I honestly wonder if the lesson that Fern learns in the beginning of the book is lost on her later mm. because of the way she moves on and maybe it's Wilbur who truly learns the lesson that he he realizes that he was spared and then he is spared again for various reasons and he really does value life because Fern Fern plays with Wilbur gives him to the farm because she has to and then fades and then is gone altogether more mm -hmm. or less mm -hmm. um which we'll get to uh, we'll get to <laughs> of course we'll get to um but with lewis it's like tr it's a transformative moment in a sense that not like everything in his life comes back to this moment of the chickens but there is something about that moment that has resonated with him since that happened and um which is why he mentioned it in march I see. I definitely see the the putting those side by side really, really does work very well. But it's it's how it's it's very interesting to see how different the uh, results are. Yeah, absolutely. Whew. I don't know that I could. <laughs> what a strange noise that was. I don't know that I could. I was add. sorry. I, it was the ice in my glass okay. settling to the bottom of the glass. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I was like, he just popped an Alka Seltzer. I have a glass. And I have a glass of ice water on the table, and and I. I picked it up and the ice went bloop from the bottom because it was stuck to the side of the glass. 
Yeah, I I liked the the connection, and it was also sort of a what if scenario. You know, what if John had been able to save the chickens? What would have happened? You know, in a fantastical world, I guess. It's a published issue of What If. I think Wolverine appears. There you go. Wolverine appears. He becomes Uh, an Avenger. Sure. But it's interesting because it almost, I mean, it really sets the tone for the whole book because his life is always in danger. And it doesn't just end when Fern saves it because it's just like biding the time. You know, he, she's, in a way, she's like preparing him to be slaughtered again. All this stuff, you know, suckling the pig with a bottle and, you know, feeding it, taking care of it. It's still going to potentially be slaughtered when it's given over to her uncle, you know, maybe for safekeeping. It's still going to be slaughtered. So it's like, you know, the same thing over and over again. It just starts this really terrible cycle until Charlotte is able to end it if they had gone to slaughter him toward the end of the book she would have been as heartbroken as she is at the beginning i don't think she's cold or anything by the end but i wonder if by then she will have realized that you know this is um this is the 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 order of things I'm not sure. I don't. Uh, I don't. I, I think she still has her same belief system, but I think that her focus is just on something else. Yeah. But I guess we'll see. Henry. Once we get to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about nature. Okay. Uh, what part do you think is played by nature in the novel? In, in the book. Well, I, like one of the major themes of of the book is is uh, the lessons that they learn about like you know life and aging and death and, and then reproduction and I guess I don't know if rebirth is the right word for it but certainly reproduction um, and all the characters have be you know like the animals this is interesting the animals all behave like those animals should like there's nothing yes they can talk in a sense but there's nothing like supernatural in the conventional sense about their existence you know they're not magical barnyard animals they just eb white just happened to give them voices but they live but they are just barnyard animals you know so so we see them in that in in what is their sort of it's not truly nature because they're essentially in captivity because they're on a farm but we also but we do moreover deal with the natural process of life the fact that you know um in uh, you know that that the food chain in in Wilbur, you know Wilbur thwarting the food chain, but the food, you know that being it, uh, Charlotte, you know having laying her eggs and dying, and really explaining how spiders and live the life of a rat, and then we have a girl who grows up or starts to grow up and kind of inches toward puberty at the end, which is another thing that's very natural. So that nature in that regard is very much at the forefront of this book. I think it's also there are particular moments that heighten the experiences. I think in particular how the fog and then the dew heighten the experience and the actual web. So the experience of seeing the web and the mm-hmm. actual yeah, web it's... itself. Yes, because yeah. initially it seemed like maybe no one would notice the web but because of it's hard to see a spider web yes it is yeah but because of the environment around it it was able to point and very much highlight it and that's what started it all off 
which I mm-hmm. think was, yeah, was interesting. So it's certainly, I feel like nature is almost another player in the novel, but you're absolutely right that it's not fantastical here. It's pretty realistic with the exception of the, the talking animals. White wrote quite a bit about being on a farm. Mm-hmm. And because White White was, um, I mean, White lived in, in New York City, but, um, you know, at one point or another, but uh, retired to Maine and wrote a lot about being on a farm in Maine and, I, I see some of the essays. Um, he has there's an essay collection of his called um, "One Man's Meat," which uh, has a number of essays about farms and and raising his farm. And and uh, I see that in this book. And you're right. He just he he has this appreciation. He has this knack for describing nature too. That again is not overdone, mm-hmm. but really is vivid. And and he he allows it to play its role as it should. He doesn't he doesn't really force he doesn't really force it. Speaking of talking animals, this was something that really got me. <laughs> Why doesn't it's clear that Fern can hear the animals? Number one, because when they were talking about slaughtering Wilbur over at Zuckerman's farm, she like. Uh, E.B. White goes on to describe like her rigid position or like she was startled or something like that and also number two because she talks to her mom which of course her mom gets concerned about this about these conversations your mom thinks she's nuts absolutely but why isn't she engaging it in the conversations if she can actually understand them I don't know I at first I was like well is, is Fern is Fern the Christopher Robin of this <sighs> story and I, on on some level she is, but I think Christopher Robin. I've, God, I don't know how long it's been since I read a Winnie the Pooh story. I think he did talk to Pooh, right? I mean, in the cartoons, they always talked and played. Um, even and then the, then they would go on in their own, the, the have their own adventures. Um, you know, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, etc. And I don't want to go down the road of like, was this all in her head? Like, you know, there's some sort of secret twist ending. I honestly just accepted it as it was. And really didn't give it much thought that like, you know, she could hear them. She didn't engage. She just kind of observed. And it's really, it doesn't matter whether or not the animals were actually talking or she could hear them because it served the story. So that's honestly like, I'm going to punt the question because I just, I just <laughs> accept it for what it is. It's, it's, yeah. It is what it is. I almost wish she didn't. I don't like it because I wish she didn't understand them. I wish that. You've seen was... Toy Story too many times. I have. That's that's Toy Story. Well, it's also going to be that new movie from yeah, but like, Wes Anderson but, or whatever his but, name is. Oh God! He, With I, the I dog and the dog island. No, I can't remember what that's called. But it's done in an interesting way because the dogs are uh, speaking English, but the boy is speaking Japanese, and they're like, "We don't understand you." So it sounds like uh, they're yeah. But anyways, I don't. Yeah, that's fine. I guess. I mean, that could be potentially anything. But if she understands them and is relating, I don't understand why she's not engaging in the conversation or like trying to stop or you know, even if physically she's showing a reaction to the news that Wilbur's going to be slaughtered you know the logical progression would be to be like no he's not gonna be so i almost wish that it wasn't i think that it would take us too much out of it if she were actually engaging but i think it would make Mm -hmm. better sense if she didn't know any of that but then it would of course cut out the craziness of you know and seeing the psychologist or what the therapist or the doctor it's Uh, the family doctor sure yeah so but i mean i don't really know what part that whole thing plays anyways except for calming 
calming the mother down and then also saying, you know, nature will take its toll and and whatever he says. This is foreshadowing. Yeah, it's it does, it's it all does. it's it's all to serve the plot of the novel. Sure. Sure. So that's why I just accept it for what it is because it just serves the plot of the novel. Mm-hmm. So well, I don't really question. It. Oh, okay. <laughs> Spoken like a true comic book fan. Uh, <laughs> why do you think Charlotte liked Wilbur so much? This is where I go back to like what I was saying earlier, like this sort of teacher role that she has. Like, I think she saw something in him where she wanted. To, to help him or she wanted him to succeed in life that I think, you know, over the course of, of my career, I've had a couple of students like that. I mean, not like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still alive. So, but, um, so I'm not, you know, going to, I'm not going to, you know, do my best to help them succeed and then die. But I've had, but you've had those, I've had those kids who, you know, if fought for or done my best to support them while they sometimes struggle um, to get themselves to get their act together or to or, you know, or to kind of stay on the right path or go somewhere or against whatever like true adversity that they're facing that I personally never had to. And, um, you know, whether it be, you know, I want to go to college and um, I need a scholarship or else I'm not going to be able to afford to go to college because we're poor and things like that. So I see that in that relationship that she's she's taking him she's taking him, uh, you know, with her as a way to, like, you know, help this this poor little soul who she she feels pity for. But. Maybe at first, but then genuinely comes to like and even love. There's like some wind beneath my wings crap going on in here too, but I can't stand that song. So, you want me to sing it for you? No. Okay. Uh, at least I asked first before singing it. <laughs> yeah, you know she's living a, a a lonely existence at this point too, and so perhaps she. I, I think it's the greatest example of empathy you know seeing this Mm -hmm. unfortunate little character and i think that's the word i was looking for (laughs) yeah and absolutely wanting to to um show love to him but i think you know she's also able to get some benefit from it as well and you know having a, a little companion and she gets to you know add some art and some flair to her to her web which you know would just be a regular web however beautiful it may be but then she gets to to do something special i i think he's different from the other barnyard animals i think she likes him because they have their own <laughs> issues and you know i i think just perhaps she she didn't really care for any of them and you know what i would say almost all of them were pretty selfish in in, in a certain way um, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say pretty selfish, but they each had, I, I believe, some selfishness in them. It, Templeton the Rat, especially. And I think Wilbur was one that didn't really... His only selfishness would be that he really desired a friend, but he um, was just always on the out. So it's always it's just going after that that little outcast. So, yeah. yeah, he's also like almost like an innocent, way more innocent than any of the other barnyard sure. animals. And he's... <sighs> He's almost like an orphan, you know. I mean, you just yeah. 
in, in that sort of sense. Yeah. Um, and I guess and, that could have hey, been Charlotte, you know, in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Because she had to fly there on her little web one day, and then she was all mm-hmm. alone. So. Yeah. I don't know where the father is, absent father. That's a good question because there's never because she she doesn't immaculately conceive those eggs, um, <laughs> you know. Like sure. there's the father. I don't know how relationships with spiders of that type work. If mm-hmm. she like you know oh, made it with made it and then killed, um, it's not brought up. Yeah. Uh, you brought up empathy. This is the second episode in a row we've brought up empathy. Empathy is a big theme. Yeah. Um, in lives. To, too too bad teenagers don't have as much of it as they should. Yeah, it's my it's my turn to say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so we'll just say that that can be a theme for our show. If yeah. you were Charlotte, what would you have written in the web in your web about Wilbur? I thought about this a little bit, and I think I'd probably write some of the same things. I mean, some pig works so well mm-hmm. because, like, her whole purpose is to save Wilbur. Mm-hmm. So she just some pig and they look at the pig and they're looking at the pig. And even somebody's like, well, the spider wrote the web and they're like, but look at the pig. And that was her whole point. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I'd change that. I don't think I could write anything better than that. I don't know. I, I think terrific and, and humble work, work very well. You know, any, any other synonym for either of those, um, you know, excellent or, or outstanding or mm-hmm. something like that. But yeah, it's, they all work. Uh, they all work really well. So there's not much that I would actually do differently than what Charlotte did. I would probably do maybe something about him being a good friend, or you know, like okay. a, or a good pig, something like that. I yeah, I don't know if really Charlotte is doing doing a good job with the the, the PR. Yes, the PR and the and the terrible amount of stuff that she has to choose from. Just those little slips of paper from the garbage. Well, Templeton makes for a horrible intern. I know he does. He does well. Yeah. She, she needed a gopher. She did. She did need a gopher. I understand what you're doing there. <laughs> Do you ever find it frustrating that all, everyone that I mean, it's its purpose is to do this, but the people are focusing on Wilbur and not like this amazing spider who's doing this to her web. No, because people are easily duped like that. So they'll ignore the basic facts of something because somebody's dangling a shiny object in front of them and saying that this is what they should believe it is it's it's and and i actually i like that it's this way in the book because of the fact that it's like it's this it's her success mm-hmm. you know she's she's his she's his marketing and uh, marketing is the uh, the unsung hero of the company. I mean, I may be biased. I worked in marketing for the better part of uh, you know five six years before I became a teacher. But you know, she's she can be very very satisfied in a job well done. I want to turn. Uh, yeah, I, I should I guess respond to this. I felt. <laughs> I don't know. It was a little like slap in my forehead when this was all happening because everyone's looking at the pig, and I'm like, I think I'd be astounded by the fact that this web says this right now. So maybe yeah, but it was it's like, me. but also you think like ew, spider. Ah, uh, yeah. And pigs are cute. That's true. And again, it's it's all like you know, pigs are cute, and then they're tasty. But and then they're tasty. Yikes. 
Your pork, bacon. Pork tastes good. Okay. Bacon tastes good. You're sick. You know who I'm going to call after this? Peter. I'm going to give him your address, and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> I guess so. I, You know, I have a good friend. His name's Donovan Morgan Grant, and he hates spiders. I, I'm pretty sure he's got arachnophobia, like legitimately. And for me, unless they're huge. And yes, you have something to respond to this? Isn't he a fan of Spider-Man? <laughs> Okay. Irony, irony of ironies. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. We went to see Amazing Spider-Man in theaters when we were at San Diego Comic-Con. And you know that – have you – you, you've seen that film, right? No. Oh, you haven't? Okay. I've um, only seen the Tobey Maguire movies. Okay. That's fine. I uh, So at one point, Peter Parker's in, you know, Oscorp, of course, and all he pushes a button by accident and all the web shift and, like, all these spiders come down. And apparently we found out later that Don was, like, squirming in his seat. I didn't know about all this stuff. But one time when I visited him, the story's almost over, don't worry. One time when I visited him, I brought over She's the Man because I very much like that and I think that many people <laughs> The get tarantula? Me. Yes! Malvolio, Malvolio, the tarantula. So then we're watching and I was thinking about, like, oh, my gosh, Don, there's, like, this really – so then I told him and he covered up his eyes. But, no, he does, like, irony of ironies, he does, like, Spider-Man a lot. But my whole point was with spiders, when I find them in my apartment, unless they're huge, I usually just let them sort of run around. If they're huge, I usually put a cup over them and then slip under a piece of mail and take them outside. But, you know, I just let them, I don't know, I find them pretty cool, but I guess maybe I'm... You know, I I also don't want them crawling over me. But, <laughs> so, I don't know. I just feel bad for Charlotte that, and, and I think that's just Charlotte, and, and she was certainly self-sacrificing of her time because even though she was worn out with producing 514 children, which only Hecuba comes in second with her 100 children, um, <laughs> some people will get the joke, uh, you know, she was probably also really worn out with making those webs because she you know, would get tired as well. So I, I feel like in doing this, she's also shortening her lifespan. So she's very much self-sacrificing. So it's just unfortunate that she doesn't get any credit for her, but for it. But, you know, that I think that's part of the allure of her character and why um, she's so loving. So It's a perfect metaphor for our profession. <sighs> oh, dear. <laughs> I don't get to walk across that stage. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't get Oh, wow. But I guess, yeah, all your children. So when you're clapping, you're really clapping that I got that person through sophomore English. Is that what you're saying to yourself? I, you know, there is a, I have had students graduate, you know, because I've had to sit through uh -oh. going on 13 of these things Woo! and um, at three different schools. Uh, yeah, uh, mandatory. I always have to go to graduation. There have been students over the years who, like, I genuinely was happy and, like, proud to see them graduate because just either because I had a very good relationship with them or because of whatever circumstances from, like, being in my class or whatever. Both, like, really, really smart, really honor students and kids who, like, you know, I had to just short of literally kicking the behind to get to work. Next time I clap, I'll think about that. I will about it. Let's talk about the fair. Mm. I think the fair is an important time in the particular novel. Why do you think it's such a turning point in the story? And not only with all the things that's going... So, I mean, Fern, you can talk about in your answer. Charlotte dies at the fair. 
Yeah. Why, why is the fair so important to this story? Well, starting with Wilbur, this is it. <gasps> if he is – if Charlotte and Wilbur are not successful and Templeton, if Charlotte, Wilbur, and Templeton are not <laughs> successful, die. Wilbur dies. I'm pretty sure if, if there was no way for him to become – like he had some fame with the some pig and then – I think some pig and excellent were before the fair and then humble was at the fair. Am I right? I I believe Humble was at the fair, but the first two were not. Were at the barn, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, so so they had some fame because they came to the fair as Zuckerman's famous pig, but that can be pretty fleeting. Mm. And the fair is like a big to-do in a community like this, right? It's like everybody's at the fair. And so to have it showcased on like that brighter stage and then to have that level of success – literally saves Wilbur's life for the rest of his life. And he lives out his days with ever have, without ever having to worry about being slaughtered. So it's so necessary to the plot that that part of it happens at the fair. Can because I if Wilbur... A... Sorry, go, go finish. I was going to say, because if he doesn't, he's slaughtered. Can I ask you a sub-question? Sure. Why is public opinion so important in this novel? Like, so it really comes down to the people approving of him. If yeah, he, yeah, yeah. If he wasn't seen at all, if the web wasn't seen, it wouldn't matter. It's just Zuckerman. But really, shouldn't it really only be about Zuckerman and the pig anyways? It's really his final decision. So why is the public so important in this matter? Reputation. Reputation is so is, – is, <laughs> Oh, Stello! Is, <laughs> yeah, reputation is very, very important in, in, in things. I'm sure that there's an economic advantage to it. And I am sure that if I am sure that the had Wilbur won and then was slaughtered anyway, perhaps the backlash would have been costly to the Zuckermans. Like there's like an actual tangible benefit to them for this, you know, in the way that 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 notoriety and fame can bring you tangible benefits. So that's the best way I can. Best thing I can think of is that they they do stand to gain something other than just basically uh, approval or reputation out of it. Perhaps maybe even economically. White doesn't really get into that. Yeah, no, deeply. I just wondered what your thought was. Yeah, you, so you can continue. You did Wilbur, so you can do. Charlotte All right, so so you have um, so yeah, I was saying how like the, the the webs and were fleeting. The fame was fleeting, but this is famous. A little more permanent here. Her purpose in the story is over and he could have had her die when they got back but it was like it was foreshadowed anyway that she was getting tired and and you know and that i don't know it's 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 just it 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 works well because it doesn't belabor the plot too because like everything happens like that's the climactic part of the book is the fair so if you were to drag that out, like it's Return of the King and we have to have like, what, 20 different endings or something? I like Return of the King a lot, but you know what I mean? Like where you have to like, it just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. I don't think that's White's style. So we had it all come to a head there. And um, and then, then Wilbur has the chance to not only nurture this egg sack, but save the egg sack which is important because Charlotte saved Wilbur. So it's not it's not enough that he just essentially watched over it back at the barn and then watched the kids and everything. It's that like he took it back with him and they snuck it into the crate and you know like you know so so in other words 
he literally repaid the same favor with with Charlotte to Charlotte that she did to him because she saved his life. Now she, now he's not saving her life because her time had come, but he's saving the lives of her children. And then Fern. Um, well, Henry was mentioned earlier, as was uh, as was the fact that you know Fern's attention will turn toward boys. It's less forced if you have him come up at this point here because this is the setting where everybody's going to be than it is to all of a sudden Henry's like in the picture. You know, it just – it made kind of an organic sense and it provides for this really um, sad scene in a sense where she is not at the – where she bolts from the blue ribbon ceremony – I want to go see Henry. I want to go see Henry. I want to go see like she she pesters her. She pesters them to the point where they give her money so she can go off and be with her boy. When they're finally giving the pig whose life she saved and who was like her best friend, like the ribbon. It's like totally. They are literally going in opposite directions. Where she's basically like buy pig, and then and then they mention like she rarely comes by anymore. And in fact. Who is there but her brother? I mean, so it's just I think it 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 again it it all wraps up very nicely, but it's a good demonstration of of how much Fern has grown apart from from the animals. Who? Yeah, when I don't know. I guess I want it to end at the farm just because, or you know, to have this climax at the farm just because that was that's been where everything has happened. But in a way, you're also simplifying lots of things because you're really just getting down to the core members and the core characters where mm-hmm. you don't have the busy bodies of the other f- barnyard animals getting in the way yeah. here. So you've, you've got Fern, you've got Templeton, you've got Charlotte and, and Wilbur and everything. So I, I guess it's a, it's a good way. And, and you're absolutely right about, you know, this is it, <laughs> uh, which is interesting because if the first two didn't do anything, then this third, you know, third time's the charm. Of, of getting everybody ready, uh, which is really interesting since he doesn't win the ribbon, but he still mm-hmm. gets, you know, he gets special. He gets an honor, yeah. Yeah, yep, yep. So Wilbur, yeah, it's his last chance. Third time's a charm. Charlotte, uh, she, like I said, you know, her self-sacrificing, I think she's expelled so much, en- so much energy on these webs as well as her creativity, and then it just comes down to these eggs, which, you know, born here at this well sorry no they're not uh but she has produced the eggs so it's almost her her greatest doesn't she even call it that her, her magnum opus yeah so I think she uses is, the phrase magnum yeah, opus yeah so which is Again, certainly lovely right vocabulary vocabulary yeah. and latin it. at that man yeah. latin. well that's the other thing doesn't she give her does she give her latin name I know you did it in the um, uh, Charlotte Cavaticus, so it's part part okay. of it. Yeah, or it's she part says of it. She's, so yeah, Cavaticus Arania or whatever right. it was. Yeah. yeah. But in other words, like again, white does not dumb this down. Of course not. No. I love no. it. I yeah. love that. Yep, yep, yep. And it's interesting because I didn't talk about. It, I skipped over, but he was actually inspired by American Spiders by Willis J. Gersh, and hmm. the Spider Book by John Henry Comstock. And he was incorporating some details from Comstock's accounts of baby spiders, like the silken parachutes. And he also sent uh, some notes to illustrator Garth Williams. And initially, Williams, his illustrator, had depicted Charlotte with like a human head. But E.B. White said, no, just keep it. So I I think that goes back to to what you're saying, you know, 
trying to keep some realism there and, and yeah because that would be a little also answer that scary. was it anthropomorphism yeah yeah is that what they call yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah that wouldn't have worked yeah absolutely yeah, that wouldn't have worked i think the because you've said wonderful things so i don't really want to go on and on about that the only one i want to add to is fern and i think with mm-hmm. fern because it's almost like a light bulb goes on and i was trying to think does this you know actually happen in real life i was trying to think about my own experiences you know did a, did a light bulb go on where all of a sudden i was interested in boys but i think part of it is she has almost reached a place where she feels like wilbur is safe potentially like his his Mm -hmm. life is secure because i think up to then you know she's been distracted by other things but she's constantly been visiting him as much as she can be and she's been concerned with his life but now we've come to a point where maybe that concern isn't as warranted and he's safe so now that that has I, i think there's this void potentially and so it's filled by this friend that she's always had but now she's looking at him differently i was trying to think about my own experiences with and yeah or like you know that did was there a moment like where you all of a sudden it's like the focus is now girls Mm -hmm. and i guess i i i know that i knew i liked girls at a young age because there was a i remember like looking at a girl for too long and thinking like (laughs) she's very pretty (laughs) not like not knowing anything aside from you know yeah so like so i knew that i liked girls very young but I, I remember I remember in the fifth grade the idea of somebody liking you started to come up, but it was the girls liking the boys more than the boys liking the girls. Girls do mature faster. Mm-hmm. Um, it all evens out at the sure. end, but um, I mean, you know, by the time you're in your thirties, but um, <laughs> you finally God. caught up. Yeah. Well, I mean, even your son. Your son is potentially Fern's age, right? And he's got that. He's ten, yeah. His little, his little friend, right? I mean, I guess he does. Friends, yeah, but they've got friends. He's got friends, but like, I, I don't. He, he has not said anything with regard to any of that, and I'm just like, that's fine. So I'm not ready for this. Sure. Um, I do remember like the first major crush that I had on a girl was in the seventh grade. Middle Which school. was yeah. middle school, middle school, school happens. Yeah. junior high school, yeah, sure. 12, 13 years old. So that's where like real things really, really kick in. But there did seem to be like a moment where not like a light bulb click, but you woke up and you're like, wait a second. Now, like we're supposed to like you instead of beating each other up on the playground, you know, like, or, you know, not beating each other. You know what I mean? Like, you know, sure. pushing each other around yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. Um, so I can totally see that. Um, there's this theme of letting go in this novel too, especially in that scene that she's she's letting go of Wilbur and, and going off with Henry, and then Charlotte is letting go of life, but with, like with dignity. There's like, but like like with like a real dignity oh, about no, it course, too. Of course, yeah. And then Wilbur's letting go of like, I mean parents, but you know like there's a sense of maturity that comes from Wilbur at the end of the fair scene because of the way he makes the decision to help Charlotte. In that he's not a selfish pig. Oh, I see what you did there. He's not a you selfish pig. You got two pig. now. You got two yeah. going for you. It is almost like he comes of age as well. Sure. And and he gives back. This is not the giving tree, where the son just takes and takes and takes and mm. takes. Yeah. And then finally gets old, and it's like, oh, I'm going to sit in the tree, and the tree was happy. It's like, no, Wilbur, Wilbur gives back. Yeah, it reminds me of. Sweet Charity, because I just saw that they, Live Arts was doing a production, and so Charity was saying, you know, I always give and give, but 
you know, I've got so much to give, but no one's, yeah. Oh, it was sad. Anyway, um, speaking of a selfish pig, let's talk about Templeton. Do you consider, and this is sort of black and white terms here, but do you think that he's uh, a hero or a villain in this story? Again, kind of black and white. There might be some gray in there, but, but what do you think about his character in this story and what he adds to it? I don't think he's either. Okay. But I think he is a foil for Charlotte. Mm. A foil is a character created to essentially be the opposite of another character. Mm-hmm. And in trait wise, like trait wise, characterization wise, so that when you put those two characters up against one another, you see the differences. There's a juxtaposition mm-hmm. between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And you do not have, now, very often, it will be both sides of the mirror. Um, and it will, and, and in some, in, in, I find Two Face to be an excellent foil for Batman. Oh. Now, I may be wrong, and I will probably be corrected. Okay. But. Harvey was <laughs> Harvey was the district attorney. He was an honorable district attorney. He was like the crusader. He was like he was like, you know, the young go-getting politician. And you're like Kennedy-esque, right? And then this this tragedy happens to him and he was so on the side of the law that like, you know, he he's now the opposite and and then you have Bruce and and there's a there's there's like a juxtaposition between the two of them and how they've looked at the law and and how they've been on the law and and things and so that's a hero villain juxtaposition foil. If you go to um, Henry Gibson's A Doll's House, you have Nora Helmer, oh, who is very much this take child. a shot, people. Every episode you bring this up. Continue. Well, <laughs> I, you love it so. If you say we're going to be reading it next month. All we're not going to be reading it. Air. It's on my list, but we're not going to be okay. reading it. Okay, okay, continue. Um, but like, but Nora, but I always use this example in sophomore English when I taught a doll's house. Is that that you have Nora, who is this very kept woman, and she is essentially a child. She's married. She has two children, but she she is very much one of the children. You know, the nanny raises the kids, and she's kind of a. When you first meet her, she's kind of a dingbat too, and then you have her friend show up. Mrs. Linda, whose first name is Christine, and Mrs. Linda shows up, and Mrs. Linda, who was childhood friends with Nora, and they haven't seen each other in like 10 years. Christine married for money. Her husband died and left her penniless, and she's had to, in the intervening years, work for everything she's had, and she is more mature, and she's more experienced, and she's more, lack of a better word, like weathered. And when they're friends, and they are never anything but friends in the play, but you put them up against one another and you see the stark differences and it points out some of Nora's flaws in a way that um, other characters do not. And I see that in Templeton and Charlotte and the idea that these two people – so you have a very selfish – sorry, selfish rat versus a very selfless spider. And his acts of kindness are out of his own motivations. He only goes to the fair to scrounge for garbage because everybody tells him that the fair is where you can find all the best food. And Charlotte genuinely cares. She risks her life to save Wilbur. Templeton couldn't really care, but is kind of along for the ride. And he, as long as he gets like, you know, I'm not in it for your revolution and I'm not in for you, princess. I'm in for just one person. Me. Sounds like Han Solo. Yeah. I mean, he is. Like, he is very much the, you know, like, no, I mean, you know, it's that Han and Luke. Han and Luke are foils, like, right up until the end of Star Wars. You know, and then Han finally has his moment. Is like, you know, you're, he 
blasts the TIE fighter. He's like, you know, you're all clear, kid. Let's blow this thing and go home. But they're very much foils, and it looks like the hopeful kid. And and Han's the, the cynical, experienced smuggler who's only in it for himself. And, you know, Templeton is – he's not as cool as Han Solo, but – but he's got that sort of selfish motivation where like, you know, and, and he, at the end of the day, he probably realizes he did a good thing. But, hey, he got to eat and eat like a king. Oh, my gosh. That always cracks me up with how fat he gets. <laughs> Isn't there like a picture of it? There is a picture of it. and It gets worse and worse. And I, I mean, initially he was already getting fatter because Wilbur, in the first <laughs> okay. agreement, he said that he was going to share like the best vittles. And then the, yeah. after the fair, it's like he can barely – I think he has to roll. He, he – page 175, there's a picture of him at like Wilbur's trough and he's talking to a sheep. And he's so round. Yeah. He's so round. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I agree. It, it was hard to – yeah, he's neither a he- hero nor a villain. It's just too black and white to, to say that because he helps – but he's he's not an altruistic character. He's doing it for his own benefit. And, you know, before doing something, he asks basically Qui Bono, who benefits, you know, and how, how can this benefit or save <laughs> me, right? And it's interesting also because of those eggs. So sometimes, sometimes weird stuff happens where he happens to save the day. But the fact that he had pilfered – he didn't really pilfer. Uh, the, the fact that he had taken those bad eggs – the rotten ones from the oh, yeah, the rotten piece, ones. Uh, and, and burrowed them away. That helped get rid of Avery when he, like, stepped on mm-hmm. them or whomever that was. I think it was Avery who stepped on them. And then yeah, it was Avery. Bad smell. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so he helps out, but uh, there's got to be something about it. Now, here's a fun story. I had a friend that I went with to high school with named Corey Templeton, and so occasionally we would call him Templeton the Rat. I don't know. He probably did not like it, but I just probably always, not. I <laughs> what do you think? But you know, I yeah, I, I was used to think about that, which is interesting. Now, occasionally, I didn't say always, but that'd be bad. My last question I want to ask is about time, because as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning, this novel takes place in a short amount of time. Uh-huh. And you uh, you almost want it to be longer since, you know, Charlotte dies at the end. But really, we, we come upon her when she's already lived a great portion of her life. So what? How, how does time play in this novel? Do you think that it works well, that it is pretty quick? You know, maybe just a matter of months? I, I don't Maybe a year has passed. Um, maybe. I, I don't know I, if there's anything. I know we go through that. a couple of seasons. Yeah, but what what are your thoughts on how it it plays if it's you know another character and do you like the fact that it is uh pretty quick and everything's pretty you know the events go one after another there's no time skip i think that um charlotte seems to be the only one who's like really aware of the passage of time in this entire novel and it's probably because she's the one who dies at the end but i don't know what the lifespan of an average spider is if i'm being completely honest you know like if her own life cycle is very brief, then she is very aware of the passage of time. Wilbur's too childlike. He doesn't understand it. He just knows he's getting bigger. I mean, my own child doesn't, doesn't understand it half the time. The fact that I think sometimes it confounds him that we remember things about him that he doesn't remember. When he was little, he went through this phase when he was little, I would tell like three years old. Where he like, like everything he hated eating everything. 
except for like chicken nuggets, pizza and quesadillas. I mean, it was like it was seriously like I'm feeding you because I need to keep you alive, but you're driving me crazy. And I just we had this one time where we gave him like um, it was like spaghetti and meat sauce or meatloaf or hamburger. It was something with ground beef. And he got upset. And he went, I don't like this beef. And so we 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 told him that he's like, I don't remember that. We're like, well, now you like beef, so good. And just this last weekend, we went to see friends, and um, their daughter and Brett are about a year or two apart, and they were in Brett. They were in the same school for uh, he when he was like in first grade. She was in pre K or whatever, and they would play together sometimes, but like they don't remember each other. And it kind of confounds him sometimes. And this Wilbur kind of has that childlike aspect to him where he's not that cognizant of how old he's getting, you know, in the day to day. He just kind of focuses on the day to day. Fern, Fern probably doesn't have much of a concept of time either. You know, she is still of that age. And when you're young, you don't. You, you measure time by like school. I mean, we measure time now by school years because we're teachers. But we, you measure time by school years, and like, and don't forget, like the the gap from eight to eighteen is so much bigger than twenty eight to thirty eight. You in adulthood, you can like blink, and five years have gone by, and you're like, where did five years go? Because you feel exactly the same you did five years ago, but. As a child, five years go by and like you've gone from elementary school to high school. Everything has changed and you're like, I'm not a little kid anymore. And it's like, look at all this stuff. So it's it's hard. The concept of time like for kids is like really, really hard to understand. Now, her mother – by the way, Mrs. Arable is a – Arable is a great name for this family because they're farmers mm-hmm. and they're farming arable land. Mm-hmm. So I just I, – I, I thought that was clever on his part. She seems like – stuck with the idea that her daughter's never going to change like that's why she goes to the doctor like oh my god she's in this and the doctor's like dude it's a phase be patient it's a phase she's going through and it was so i don't know i don't even know if i answered the question but no i think i think that's fine i googled as you were speaking maybe one to three years it really depends i couldn't find anything specific but looking at other species of spider spiders one to three is the general there i also found about the mating there i know i'm not going to get graphic but it says that (laughs) males approach females with caution in order to avoid being eaten so i'll skip the scandalous Uh. parts and then it says the male departs after mating and the female spends a number of days inside her retreat she then begins to spin an egg sack or cocoon, which protects the eggs. She stays close to the cocoon for a number of days before dying. So, I mean, pretty accurate there. This there you guy, go. Which, I mean, yeah, no. I, I wouldn't put it past him really to be inaccurate as we saw that he, you know, he lives on a farm, so he's got real life experience, I, and then he also yeah. enjoyed those, those spider books, so he's pretty authentic, I would say. Yeah. I appreciate that authenticity yeah. and that accuracy, too. You know, I mean... Again, and, and and expressed in a way that is like really simple. Yeah, it's not it's not Melville's well, you know. For some reason, I must have a faulty memory, but I thought in the animated feature, as I was reading, I'm like, oh yeah, I think they're they're gonna grow up, grow old, and then like practically like Charlotte will die, and then Wilbur will be pretty aged. And I thought I remembered Fern coming back and being adult, and Wilbur still there, but I must be wrong because when this happened, you know, Charlotte died. I'm like, no, Charlotte, you're supposed to die pretty close to Wilbur, but that was wrong. 
So I, I wish it were longer, but it, it yeah, it's just the sequence. It just is, it's very quick. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the seasons change as well as Wilbur growing up. So really that's how time is measured. And mm-hmm. uh, it's sad that we, we just peek a little bit into Charlotte's life and just catch that tail end of her life. And, and it's also, it's interesting because you wonder what she had done the first half of her life. But okay. I, I guess... Wilbur just made the second half of her life more memorable. Um, and then, of course, mm-hmm. the children, I think, as, as her magnum opus there. So, yeah, time is interesting. You you spot it with Wilbur growing, and you also spot it with the seasons. But I guess I was just expecting it to be longer, but it's not. It may seem like it is, but it's actually very quick. So that's what took me by surprise. Yeah. Well, I, those are actually the questions. Those are the main ones that I want to ask. Were there any other questions you would like? There was something about, I wrote a point on the theme of childhood and innocence and how so much in childhood seems like forever, but moves so quickly. And I think that was way more of a succinct way of putting what I was saying as a way to my, I, I don't, I, I was going for something there about like this sort of coming of age. It is essentially a coming of age novel in a mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. a coming of age novel in a way for children to understand sure because most of the time the coming of age novels we read are read for teenage and then older audiences mm-hmm. and there's a coming of age aspect to well the catcher in the rise coming of age novel oh, yes. uh that has my dad has an older audience to kill a mockingbird was written for adults it, it, it's a coming of age novel you have well, Jane Eyre has a coming of age aspect <gasps> to it. That was not that was not written for elementary school children. No. You have um, the Outsiders, which was written for young adults. Uh, a number Huck Huck Finn has some of it. You know, a number of coming of age stories are written for audiences older than grade school level. Mm-hmm. White does this really well, yeah. and he does it in a way that like the kids can acknowledge that we grow up and sure. we grow old and we die and. He's not sugarcoating the reality of life, but he's not presenting it in some sort of schmaltzy, maudlin sort of way either. Do you think he's trying to also show that, you know, one of those well-said or oft-said statements of, you know, make your life worth something? Maybe. Yeah. Since Charlotte certainly did at the end, she she made it worth Wilbur's life, potentially. She saved somebody find your purpose, like imbue yeah. yourself with a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. I can see that, yeah. I like how it's ironic that um, Mrs. Arable goes to the doctor, but it turns out to be like a session for her. to come. <laughs> Like it ends up, you know, it goes, she's well, yeah, going for firm, like, but then in the end it's like comforting Mrs. Arable, which is funny. It's like every mother ever, so. Would you teach it? I also, I'm struggling with the word novel here. So as you say about would you teach it, do you consider this a novel? I've considered a novel. Yeah, I consider it a novel okay. for children. Okay. I just uh, kids, kids these days, <laughs> or teachers these days, would refer to this as a chapter book. A chapter book. Wow. Yeah, I've heard that. I hadn't heard that term until I started teaching, and and Brett used it a couple of times. But yeah, it is it is a novel. <laughs> it is it is a novel Don't for children. Don't call it that. No, I wasn't gonna. I would never do that to him. <laughs> I'll use it in both contexts, in both elementary school and high school. And I have no experience with elementary school other than going and having a child. You know, I, I I'm nowhere near qualified to teach elementary school, nor would I ever want to. But I love this book because I love it for its message. I love it for its use of pathos. 
I love it for its use of vocabulary, and I know, and that's why I believe it's it's deservedly an elementary school standard. Even if you're reaching an audience that is not going to be familiar about life on a farm, if you're diversifying your elementary school curriculum and adding more books where the faces you see in the classroom can relate to it, you should. But please, like, keep this in with it. Don't ditch one for the sake of the other. That's not what. That's not what you're doing. That's you know, that's not what you should be doing. I think actually, at a maybe a middle school level, this would be a great book to use as a very basic look at plot and character. In a way that, like, if you were getting on the very beginning, very very beginning level of like real literary analysis. The type of stuff you end up doing, say, an AP English class or just an upper-level English class in high school, that in middle school you could take a book like this and really break it down into those elements and see how it is because it's so simple in its story because it has to be that it's very, very clear-cut. and It's not hard to see where the exposition and the complication and the rising action, the climax and the denouement are. You, know, and you can use those – as gateways into things that when you get into much more complex novels, your your great Gatsby, your Huck Finn, your Frankenstein or whatever you're teaching in, in high school, that becomes more muddled. That becomes more like, you know, just it becomes harder to pick out if you don't have any experience with it. So just the way that like this is really, really, really well structured and really very clear is that you can do that. And you might even in like a very beginning creative writing thing also uses to teach like plot structure and and how like you know how everything comes together in a climactic scene in this way um you know and and also without a hero villain fight because another thing is that so much of the entertainment the kids have and and we have is that it is heroes fighting villains you know like when i do protagonists and antagonists i have a slide like you know, I have Batman and the Joker on the slide because it's like, you know, here's the hill, here's the hero, here's the villain. This one antagonizes the other one. You're like, because it's a really, really clear cut example of what a protagonist and an antagonist are. Mm-hmm. We don't really have that here. So you can, and or you don't have like, vi- there's the threat of violence <laughs> and there's some kind of comical violence, but you don't have like, this isn't war, this isn't criminals, this isn't nobody's, you know. So it actually is also on that flip side, like, you know, here's how to do a plot of a protagonist and a struggle without having to deal with people killing one another and things like that. So, but I think it would be a really interesting tool to use on that level. Now, the drawback of doing that is that I don't think that middle schoolers would want to because of the fact that it's a kid's book. And they're too grown up for that. Maybe, but at the same time, they'll like watch The Lion King. So I don't know. So, <laughs> you know, like cause Disney movies, like we use cartoons in Disney movies to illustrate like so many points about whatever literary devices we're talking about. The hero's journey, you know, like that sort of stuff. So, but it would be an interesting experiment to do, but definitely, definitely uh, a, a must read for little kids. You used a French word earlier and I had never heard it before. Denouement. Yeah, what is that? It's um, it's the ending. It's the ending of the story. Okay. It's the falling action and the resolution. Okay. Thank you. I'll look up the I'll look up the technical definition. While you Sub question: Would you ever own a pet pig? 
No, I'm not one for pets. Okay, just wondered. You have a child. So I've never, cool. I've never owned a pet. Oh wow! My uh, sister owns a rabbit. We had a oh, hamster. Oh. Denouement. The final part of a play, movie, or narrative in which the strands of the plot are drawn together and matters explained or resolved. Okay. Thank you. I can see it in my mind now that you pronounce it. It's D-E-N-O-U-M-E-N-T. I was never allowed to own a pet as a kid mm-hmm. because my I think my mom has allergies and also yeah, just caught, issues. Yeah. I can't have cats. Because I can be around cats. But I, but like, there's a certain point where like I need to make sure that I take an allergy pill because I have, I do have, um, I'm allergic to cat, uh, to cats, dogs not so much. Um, I would love to have a dog, but at this point, I don't know. Maybe maybe when Brett's older and you know it's not as <laughs> crazy. Teach him responsibility. Well, to answer that sub question, my mother always threatens to get a pig. Um, which is interesting. Yeah, it's hard because, you know, I teach 8th graders, so I'm not really sure. I think it'd be interesting to pair it with Call the Wild so that, you know, they're they're reading this vicious, mm. tragic book, and then they can have a more uplifting thing. It's still about the circle of life. Tragic book. It is tragic. Tragedy done twice. <sighs> but, yeah, no, I... Tragedy I, two ways with a side of bacon. Oh, my heavens above. I think... Yeah, I, I like your idea. I don't know that I could necessarily add add to that at all i wonder if there's anything good to to pair it with um yeah because i know younger like elementary school children read where the red fern grows i think that's what's called isn't it the red there's that there's the red pony there's a number of the red ponies on my list yeah Um, that's steinbeck oh wow yeah so it'd be interesting to girls on my list too yeah but I agree with you that once we get to a certain point, they're like, why are we reading this? We're older than this. So yeah, I it know. would be a yeah. good way to, yeah, potentially teach. I think use it so to sort of pull the wool over their eyes that we're using it in this way. Yeah. Well, we are get now. get off their phones. Oh, yeah. That's a problem <laughs> you have. I don't have that. It's time for some feedback. Yes. And, and uh, you're going to be reading these, I think. Is that okay? Yes, because you've you done the majority of the um, heavy lifting in the episode here. So I will go ahead and read. And I think I'm going to have to be doing some heavy lifting on this first email, too. Yeah, because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's directly that's addressed at you. Yeah. Um, yep. So we have one email from Robert Ward uh, about Jane Eyre. And then we have another one from Gene Hendricks about A Christmas Carol. I'm going to start with Robert's email about Jane Eyre. And he said the subject was another long one. Dear Tom and Stella, I'm going to cut the cutesy fun and get straight to the point. Unlike Tom, I didn't hate Jane Eyre, but rather I feel I don't understand it. I feel the crux of the novel is Jane's relationship with Mr. Rochester, and if I can't understand why she's attracted to him, I can't evaluate the novel, period. You failed to mention it, and I've seen some alarming articles where the worst is that we must be supportive solely because we are in it for Jane. But, Stella, can you explain if the attraction to Mr. Rochester is wholly plausible or how, as a reader, we can reconcile their issues and be supportive of it? As an orphan, I can consider that it's entirely possible that Jane would be attracted – sorry, that Jane could be attracted to a man twice her age if looked through the lens of daddy issues. Likewise, being naturally more submissive in nature, I can understand liking someone who is more assertive. My problem is – All that combined, along with his abuse and ugliness, it just doesn't seem very realistic. There 
they aren't strictly in the midst of steamy hots for each other, but rather they seem to be depicted as downright soulmates. He is twice her age, described several times by her as, quote, rather ugly. He is overly assertive, manipulative to the point of abusive, and really her first sustained contact with a man. Later, we are given the explanation that the manipulation and trickery were out of not only honor, but some perverted self-protection. That's a lot to ask to cast off in understanding. To question any of these attributes, though, by themselves or coupled with one or two of the others makes me feel as if I'm not only being cynical, but downright insulting to women. That's why I really hope that you can set me straight. It has been suggested that Jane could only marry at the end after she becomes Rochester's equal. This is completely loaded in itself, as it's not only through a dead uncle and bodily mutilation, but also in conflict with everything previously endured on her part. Jane Eyre has clearly survived the ages, and it's your favorite book. So as a stereotypically clueless male, what the hell am I missing? And then he has in parentheses, FYI, I tried looking up, and let's say, if even if Rochester was a handsome and kind man, according to some data crunching, in a modern sense, their relationship is doomed. At a 20-year age gap, you are 95% more likely to divorce. divorce. And he um, provided a link to an article, I think it was the New York Post. Now, this is hardly comparable due to the difference in time and social attitudes, but I believe this firmly illustrates how difficult it may be without becoming your husband's right-hand child-rearing and other issues Jane would be occupied with. I can name several celebrity marriages with large gaps, some more turbulent than others, but still somehow enduring it all. Joan Collins is 32 years older than Percy Gibson. Doug Hutchinson is 35 years older than Courtney Stodden. And of course, Hugh Hefner was 60 years older than Crystal Harris at the time of his death. This isn't to say you can't be in love or by all accounts successful in marriage with a large gap. According to sources, Crystal Harris was, quote, a pillar of strength with the ailing heft and aptly his right hand as she was always there by his side toward the end. Who knows what agreements or problems may secretly exist? Clearly, Hutchinson's is very public, though, to make these functional, but still the question lingers. All right. He moves on to Sinjin. That's how it's pronounced, right? Yes. Okay. Back into Robert's email. Oh, boy. It's undeniable that he is a dick. But he is so misguided that it is at least minimally forgiven. It was concluded that Rosmond would would have been a terrible missionary's wife. But do you think if he was able to realize his love for her, he could have been soft? I think he meant to be. He could have been softened and become more moderate. Or do you think his zealotry was absolute and he was doomed from the beginning? Jane quite literally became her master's right hand and eyes. What if Sinjin was the parallel of him? I can't seem to shake him off and keep thinking about how longingly he admired a portrait of her. Was the insistent on the India mission with Jane as his wife merely a reaction to losing his great love? Wouldn't, couldn't Roz be the better half that could have completed him and made him less absolute about his mission just as Jean was Rochester's half. He held her off due to his inability to reconcile his desire and what he felt was his purpose. If he could have started a courtship, could his complete devotion to the Lord shift to include earthly and more human matters? Was Bronte telling us that while noble, if we don't include our other passions outside of a fervent pursuit, we are doomed and bound to get lost in ourselves? Without Jane, was she telling us that Rochester was just as doomed to a similar fate? And uh, that's uh, from our scholastic book buddy, Robert Ward. So I'm going to let you answer the uh, email because he really is 
addressing you. He's put me More on than stage. Me. Okay, I'm trying to figure out what to tackle first. <laughs> okay, I think, unfortunately, sorry about that. It might be, I hate saying this, but a uh, a man thing, a man thing. To, to A certain percent of it is. Because I think if you look around um, a lot, really it's it's the, the females that I think really grasp onto these uh, romantic heroes and male characters and it's hard to number one describe why like it's going to be hard for i'm going to be stumbling around i've i've actually thought about this a lot but uh it's hard to describe why because they are on paper very unlikable like if you were to describe them yikes why are you dating that person and it's interesting because besides Rochester, because many people think that Rochester is a really attractive man, again, not on paper, but just the idea of him. If you think about, I was considering, because there's this book club at school, uh, I was considering Elizabeth Bennett and her relationship with Mr. Darcy. And Mr. Darcy is absolutely a jerk as well. You know, she he is offensive to her even though she can't hear about you know she's kind of attractive but he's not he's clearly not going to dance with her he breaks up the marriage of lizzie's elder sister and his friend mr bingley and then afterwards confesses his love and says something along the lines of you know like i've tried to (laughs) basically reason through this but it's not working and i'm in love with you it's like the worst thing ever but then later on you you start to soften and even Lizzie starts to soften towards him because he rescues her younger sister so even he and you know how everyone is in love with Mr. Bennett perhaps more than I think Mr. Rochester I think time and time again you hear of Mr. Bennett I don't know if I've really heard anyone say "Ugh, Mr. Bennett and part of that is is the pop culture of of the era as well because Colin Firth played him so everyone's Mm -hmm. Colin Firth so you know you have that there the reason why and you're absolutely right uh, about it, they don't have the hots for one another. That's certain. I think even though Tom and I disagreed about this, I think sexuality isn't as much in play as you know other relationships that are put on paper. And I know Tom, because I don't want to like miss say what you had said. I know yours is more about like symbolism of like pent up sexual frustrations and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. There was, a, there was an expression of, of this repressed sense of sexuality right. that permeated yeah. the Victorian age. Correct, yeah. Um, and, and I just don't think that that's, you know, I feel like, you know, the the attraction is, is not physical. It's something else. And I can't argue against the fact that he is manipulative and he does these things that, like, he tricks her and even practically towards the very end before the whole confession she's led to believe that he's going to marry Ingrid and but I like to think that even before he is maimed which is one of the big problems that Tom had and you know are they finally equal now that he's physically maimed I feel like that they were equal in the beginning because when they are alone I think you really start to see like things are very transparent with him She is the one that he goes to to help him when his friend is injured, 
when, you know, all those guests are around and everything, he trusts her to do all of this, not anyone else. He brings her into the room, which, it, you know, when they're playing games and things like that, which is hurtful for her because she's got to witness all this. But very much, I think he just likes to have her near him. So I think there is a, an equality between them before the physical maiming actually happens. And what I like about um, how he talks to her, because he is very sar- sarcastic and, and all of that stuff is because I think he talks to her in a way that no other man that she had encountered had really ever talked to her. Uh, He's not condemning her. He's able to joke around with her. So I think while her best relationship was probably with her Uncle John, I think that this is, she only had that relationship for a little bit of time and uh, a lot of love I think was beaten out of her with her family relationships as well as Brocklehurst and things like that. I think she's able to <laughs> recover some of that a little bit, but in a, in a it, just in a different way. I, I'm not going to argue that it's it's a wholesome love or it's perhaps... I'm trying to think of the the word here, healthy, but (laughs) I do think that there is love there, and I do think that they are equals, and he treats her as an equal, even though from the outside, it's it's hard to see that. I and it's hard to explain why I I like him so much. It's just it's the pairing. It's the pairing because I love Jane so much that it's when you're reading and and you are hearing how she feels about Rochester, you if you if you love that character so much, you also start to feel it as well. So I think I like him more in empathy for her and like feeling what she's feeling, which is goes to I think Charlotte's um genius as a writer at least I think so because I think it's so beautiful but it it really is hard for me to I think it is unfortunately a woman thing and I think you could potentially break down all of the masculine heroes that we have at that age (laughs) like I said Mr. Darcy but yeah I don't know do you have any thoughts on this it's really hard to answer I I don't um I don't have any uh, thoughts more than I've already said so Okay. I'm sorry if that, you know, I'm, I'm, I try to defend it, but I don't know if I'm doing so good of a job. Well, Sinjin here, I think he did realize his love for her because he said, do you, do you think that if he were able to realize his love for her, he would have been softened and become more martyred? I think he knew. I think he knew. And that's what he hated about himself. He did not want to have this love for her. So it's like self-loathing? I think so. Because he wanted... He, he was ordering his desires in a way that either was, well, in a way it was healthy, but he was going about it in an unhealthy way. So again, from a Christian perspective, right, um, God should be at the top. And that's what he was trying to do. But he was doing it in a way that was ignoring all other things. And the wonderful thing about, you know, the, Christianity is that it's not like about denying everything else because there's a place like God has given us the ability to love. So it was wrong of him to just like completely disavow that love for Rosamond. And I think that she perhaps could have been a a lovely missionary's wife because she was already doing that in a sense with helping Jane out, get, you know, and the, and the, the children and all of that stuff. There is a character trope or a character type of the person who is so, so adamant about one thing that it's masking some sort of self-loathing or some sort of ironic actual something ironic about that there's something ironic ironic about that adamant like position that they take in terms of like it's sitting on such an extreme form of behavior 
So she's clearly playing on that. Uh, regarding um, Jane quite literally becoming her master's right hand, you're asking if Sinjin was the parallel of Rochester? I believe I it says, was the consistency... Could Roz be the better half that could have completed him and made him less absolute about his mission just as Jane was Rochester's half? So, like, Sinjin and Rosamond Roz, mm-hmm. would have been the Jane and Rochester of that couple. They were, they were the, they were, she were, they were each other's Jane and Rochester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, as you were talking about foils, right? I, I think Sinjin is certainly the foil of Rochester there because Rochester really wanted a love. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was, that would, I mean, he was looking for that because he had tried it before, but it was so unfulfilling and it really doomed him. And now he's looking for something that will complete him. And Sinjin is like, I don't want that type of love, but I will have like marriage, but only like a duty kind of thing marriage as a duty so yeah I, th- they are pretty similar whether rosmond would have been able to soften him i don't know he he was pretty solid in his he doesn't seem like rochester to me that rochester could be swayed and change and he softened but i don't know about sinjin he seemed pretty severe i mean that's yeah all right uh should i go on to gene uh in his email sounds good yeah, I was just thinking about that last question he said. Was Bronte telling us that while noble, if we don't include other passions outside of a fervent pursuit, we are doomed and bound to get lost in ourselves? I think possibly. Yeah, I was thinking about that because I guess in my daily devotional, I've been reading Corinthians, and Paul does talk about, you know, even for the, but, you know, for missionaries and even for the apostles, like marriage would be okay, and it's nice to share that with somebody. And I think also if you're denying yourself, lots of things um you could get yourself into trouble um <laughs> so i i yeah i think so and and rochester without jane i think was going to be doomed obviously we saw what he looks like at the very end and then when jane returns he like takes on a whole nother character so that's why i love it so okay well now you can move on okay gene uh, gene hendricks of the hammer strikes and uh, other and two and and our fellow two true freaks Compatriot writes about A Christmas Carol, and he says, Stella and Tom, I really enjoyed your episode on A Christmas Carol, which is my favorite holiday story. I do have some things to point out, however. Uh-huh. One, Tom, you have really disappointed me. Uh-oh. As a fellow Disney fan, how could you not recognize the two charity collectors as Rat and Mole from The Wind in the Willows? Sheesh. And I'm going to just break and say, Mia culpa. I totally <laughs> – when I went back, and I'm like, what the hell was I talking about the Great Mouse Detective? But I was I, – I, yeah, I just – I had a brain fart. Oh, man. Two, if you haven't seen the whole thing, I would highly recommend the Alistair Sim movie adaptation. Not only do you get great performances from the entire cast, but it added not only the reason Scrooge became a miser and why he doesn't like Fred, but the reason for his redemption. Uh, the best part is that they are all in the exact same moment. The moment is at 3135 if you don't have the time to watch the whole thing. And he provided a link. And uh, I can probably put that in the show notes. I might go retroactively back into the Christmas Carol show notes and add some of Gene's stuff if I get the time. Three, the only person in the entire text that isn't happy is Scrooge. The wealthy, Fezziwig Bell and her new husband, Fred and the other businessmen, and the poor, the Cratchit's the junk shop crew, Dick Wilkins and the rest of the family that owed Scrooge in the future, they're all happy. It's the loneliness that makes Scrooge miserable, not the money. I'm not saying that there is an obvious division of the haves and have-nots, but your economic status has nothing to do with your happiness. 
Yeah, I think that maybe the money, like the pursuit of the pursuit of money. I think the point I was trying to make is the pursuit of money kind of exacerbates the loneliness that you're alienating everybody because you have this greed that has consumed you. But I think Gene has a really, really excellent point. Which I I agree with that because you you've got him pushing away his fiance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he feels like he hasn't made it yet. Yeah. We kind of comes around again in, in the opposite way in The Great Gatsby, but we'll eventually get to that one. Um, as to yet come, number four, as to yet to come, being hooded, so the ghost of the spirit of Christmas yet to come. Uh, silent figure, he's a hooded silent figure. He's the future. How often do you get information from the future? Of course, he's silent and unknowable. And all I can think of now is like lost whenever anyone, any any sort of character would talk about the future that they knew would happen. They would do it in such like circuitous way in like vague ways that not you wanted to like re- yeah not not even that but like you know like they'd come up and like they'd say like the universe has this way of correcting itself desmond he'd be like hey what are you talking about brother um so just yeah but no i think that's the other thing it's like you don't get a lot of information from the future he's silent and not knowable it's a great succinct way of putting it finally five for a real in-depth analysis, I can't recommend Michael May's yearly Christmas Carol project enough. Uh, he takes a section of Dickens and looks at various adaptations, including the Teen Titans, Mickey's Christmas Carol, and them up at Christmas Carol, and he sees how they compare to the original. It's fascinating. I will have to post a link to that, at least on the Facebook page, before uh, Christmas comes. Glad you'll Merry Christmas and Joyous New Year's to you and your families, Gene. So thank you very much, Gene. Uh, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, that that Christmas Carol project that sounds fascinating. I might check that out. That means so, we're here. Yes, the mystery. Here. The mm-hmm. mystery of what we will be covering next month, which it is, is Valentine's Day month. Yes. Are you yes. picking something that has to do with love? No, no, it's a mystery. Oh dear. But wait, is it a literal mystery novel? Yes, no, it is it's not. Yes, it is. It's Agatha We're, Christie. It is not Agatha Murder Christie. Murder on the Orient Express. No, it is not. It is not. It is Sherlock Holmes in the Hound of the Baskervilles. Whoa, I'm so, nervous. Yeah, yeah, we're we're putting ourselves. Um, we we may get we may get a response from a particular professor friend of ours on this one. Maybe maybe his uh, his daughter who um, figured out that whole pilot pirate thing in Watchmen. Uh, really, really well, and uh, he loves it when you remind him of that. By the way, so include that in an email about how you organize your comic collection whenever you email him. And but anyway, yes, The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The issue is, I don't know how he's going to get this because he's been in Sing Sing. The universe has a way of correcting itself. I guess we'll see. Okay, well there we go. We'll be reading some Sherlock Holmes, or if you're like me, you'll take a shortcut and watch. Um, Sherlock on BBC, and hopefully you can keep up with the. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll actually read it. Uh, yeah, that sh- that should be interesting. My once former boss, he very much likes the Sherlock. So if it's a good, if it's a good episode, maybe I'll recommend it to him. Okay. <laughs> well, this is it. Do you have anything to say for yourself? No, just it's the middle of January, uh-huh. so hopefully you are keeping warm. I just went on a walk with shorts on this. this yeah, well, it's moon, so. this is coming out in the middle of January. Right now, it's the middle of December. For some reason, it was sixty-six degrees out today. It but, was bizarre. I don't yeah, like it. 
It'll get back to it's supposed to get back down to the normal temperature by Christmas Day, which is important to me. Yeah, absolutely. Christmas Day should not be warm in an in an area like this. No, absolutely not. Until next time, may your rats be fat and happy. Good night. It's a beautiful medal, Wilbur, and you deserve it. Are you all right, Charlotte? You don't sound like yourself. I'm a little tired, perhaps, but I feel peaceful. Your success today was, to a small degree, my success. You will live now, secure and safe. Why did you do this for me, Charlotte? You have been my friend. That in itself is a tremendous thing. After all, what's a life anyway? We're born, we live a little while, and we die. A spider's life can't help being something of a mess with all this trapping and eating flies. By helping you, perhaps I was trying to lift up my own life a trifle. I haven't got your gift for words, Charlotte, but you've saved me, and I would gladly give my life for you. I'm sure you would. Oh, won't it be wonderful to be back home in the barn cellar again with the sheep and the geese, Charlotte? I will not be going back to the barn. Not going back? What are you talking about? I'm done for, Wilbur. In a while, I'll be dead. I haven't even strength enough to climb down into the crate. Oh, no! <laughs> oh, come, come now, Wilbur. Let's not make a scene. Chin up, remember? Everybody loves a happy face. But I can't stand it. I won't leave you alone here to die. I shall stay, too. Oh, don't be ridiculous, Wilbur. Zuckerman's on his way here right now. He'll be going home in a few minutes. Charlotte, where's Templeton? He's sleeping. There, under the straw. Templeton, pay attention. What kind of monkey shine is this? Listen to me. Charlotte has only a short time to live. She can't go home with us. It's absolutely necessary that I take her egg sack with me. You're the only one that can reach it. So, it's old Templeton to the rescue again, is it? Templeton, hurry up! So it's hurry up, Templeton, is it? And what thanks do I get for these services, I would like to know. Templeton, I'll make you a solemn promise. Get Charlotte's egg sack for me, and from now on, I'll let you eat first when Larvy slops me. You mean that? Cross my heart. It's a deal. Use extreme care. I don't want a single one of those eggs harmed. This, this stuff sticks in my mouth. It's worse than caramel candy. Charlotte, your children are safe. Charlotte? I'm thinking of your life, Wilbur. Nothing can harm you now. The autumn days grow short and cold. It's Christmas time again. Then snows of winter slowly melt. The days grow short and then... He turns the seasons around 
And so she changes her gown. Mother Earth and Father Time. How very special are we for just a moment to be part of life's eternal For listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. It's not that unusual When everything is beautiful It's just another ordinary miracle today The sky knows when it's time to snow Don't need to teach a seed to grow It's just another ordinary Like a gift they say Wrapped up for you every day Open up and find a way Give some of your own Isn't it remarkable Like every time a raindrop falls It's just another